Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. Um, paranormal weather update. I- I'm going with poltergeist weather today. It is very poltergeisty. It's it, it certainly took my tomatoes down, and that isn't a euphemism. <laughs> well, I, I even I think the poltergeist theme came to my mind because. It was uh, it was quite nice. The sun was out. It was blue skies. There were I mean there was a few clouds, but I thought I'd take the dog out for a walk this afternoon. And then we get halfway across a very exposed field, and the heavens just opened on us. It was ridiculous. And my dog doesn't like going out in the rain. He just turned around and wanted to go home. So, yeah, Pulse Guys weather, I reckon. You did say he was in a huff when yeah. I arrived. He, yeah, he was in a huff. He's still in a huff. He's a bit wet and still in a huff. Um, the other thing uh, that's been grabbing my attention this week, you know the other week when I said there there were signs that somebody had, that the scientists at NASA were saying, oh, there could be kind of signs on life on Mars. And, yeah. you know... Uh, there's been quite a lot in the last couple of weeks about life somewhere else, life on Venus. Um, I think it was, I think, I think it's an excuse, in some ways, for the press to dig out those photos of. Have you heard of this? Like these secret Russian probe photos that show a scorpion type creature on Venus. They've been knocking around for ages, but they seem to have, have resurfaced again. But that's not the intriguing part because it got me reading around the subject and I found this at space.com the headline is life on Venus question mark intriguing molecule phosphine spotted in planet's clouds again it says in September 2020 the team of scientists led by Jane Greaves of Cardiff University in Wales reported the detection of phosphine a possible indicator of life that they found in the clouds of Venus the announcement sparked a heated debate and a surge of follow-up studies, which had generally failed to spot the intriguing molecule in the Venetian atmosphere. Now there's a new twist. Speaking at the Royal Astro- Astronomical Society's National Astronomy Meeting 2023 in Cardiff this week, Greaves revealed the discovery of phosphine deeper in the atmosphere of Venus than had been spotted before. Using the James Clark Maxwell Telescope... Greaves and her colleagues delved into the atmosphere of Venus, down to the top, even the middle of the planet's clouds. The team thinks that the phosphine could be coming from lower in Venus's atmosphere. But as Greaves pointed out in the talk, the real question is, what does phosphine mean? Could this be evidence of alien life on Venus? So phosphine can only exist if there's a biological... Uh, interaction with an organism. Is that yeah, right? I mean, Gre- uh, I think Greaves would probably put it better than me. She says, um, on Earth, phosphine is generated by microorganisms living in a very low oxygen environment. She explained that phosphine is generally not made in any other way on our planet, as Earth lacks the abundance of loose hydrogen. This suggests that phosphine, if detected on other worlds, is potentially a biosignature. That is fascinating. And it made me think, um, because I've not heard much of this 
from a NASA perspective. NASA seemed to focus on Mars. And I wondered if this is almost a historical thing, because historically, if you think about it, ironically, the red planet was kind of Americans and NASA's, mm. and Venus was the Russians. You know, they mm-hmm. sent multiple probes there uh, ahead of anything else. So I wonder if there's a bit of a kind of hangover from the space race of not looking at Venus, or or I guess if you're a conspiracy theorist, they're going, hey, look over here at this red planet where actually, weirdly, Venus could be... Um, our best chance of life. I, I guess the David Bowie song wouldn't have worked so well, though. <laughs> no, no, but Venusians were, were <laughs> traditionally very, uh, well, at least in abduction law, very beautiful uh, race of people. Yeah. Probably not quite cloud-dwelling single-celled organisms, but... Um, or scorpions. Or scorpions. No, that is very, very interesting. And I do... I hope some something more comes about that, because I hadn't heard that. It seems like at the moment... All of the news is about, um, you know, Grush and craft and things. Yeah, I think um, in reading around different articles, it, I don't know if NASA are doing anything with Venus, but I think there are some kind of more private funded studies and possibly probes um, that will be uh, looking into this a bit more. But as far as I can tell, there are, some scientists say there is a natural way to produce these phosphines, which doesn't involve anything biological but it's uh there seems to be debate about that but certainly the people who've gone through this research have said as far as we're concerned that that this can only be produced or most likely be produced by some kind of bioorganism so fascinating that is amazing and as if you'd broken into my house and read my notes Right. I am going to talk about life on the moon. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so weird. Because <laughs> well, I didn't know what you were going to kind of do when you came over, so it's weird I picked that story. Maybe it's a zeitgeist thing. Well, maybe. I. So I got... So one thing I wanted to talk about, I've wanted to talk about a long for a long time, is the mad gasser of Montoon. I love that story. Yeah. And so I started researching around it because... You know, as we will discover, some people might say it was a flap, and you have done flaps. You, you know, you did the dancing. Yep. Uh, well, I suppose that was a flap. And people who dance themselves to death. Yeah. Yeah, and I found this wonderful piece of source material by Robert E. Bartholomew and Hilary Evans: "Panic Attacks, Media Manipulation, and Mass Delusion" from two thousand and four. Right. And it talks about all sorts of different cases but the one that really struck me as being oh, i was like i have to do this on the show is the great moon hoax of 1835 <laughs> now i didn't even know there was such a thing it was when tabloid journalism we've often spoken about how journalism plays a role mm. in understanding a lot of these stories and this is the first time um by the author's account, that uh, a paper called The Sun, which is not our one in the UK, it's a US version, decided it would really dive into tabloid journalism in a big way. And it sort of, it starts off by telling us about Benjamin H. Day, who was the owner of The Sun. And in the summer of 1835, he pulled off what the book describes as the most successful hoax in newspaper history. Oh, wow. They claim to have 
to have indisputable proof that the moon was inhabited by an array of strange creatures, including beings resembling Batman and two-legged beavers. <laughs> I know, I know. That's brilliant. So it, <laughs> but you see, this is the genius of it. It's based in fact, not the fact of the 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 moon was um covered in animals or life or anything but a real expedition was going on you see in november 1833 there's a british astronomer sir john frederick william herschel and he's the son of the renowned astronomer sir right. william herschel right um so he just added some more bits to the beginning of his name. <laughs> he just and thought he'd add a few more words at the start. Yes. Yeah. And I didn't realise he's the discoverer of the planet Uranus. Right. And <laughs> and the butt of many jokes. <laughs> I was just going to say, I managed to do that without smirking. But yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know if I was going to make it. But um, he goes on this voyage. Uh, so him and his family board a ship in Portsmouth in England and they're bound for the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa intent on observing the heavens in order to map out portions of the southern sky not visible north of the equator. Oh, that'd be, that, well, that's a nice trip, it's isn't it? It's a good trip, isn't it? Especially if you can get funding to do that. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, in those days, I think, you know, there were so many... There was quite a lot of money around. So you're sort of talking just post-Regency period. Mm. And there's a lot of people who... I mean, the Regency period is fascinating by... Um, because there is uh, some wealth around in some parts of society and technology is beginning to advance a little bit, you get rich people who invest in people who are sort of um, men of men of science, if you like. I mean, I won't cover it now, but I was reading the other day about... See, I didn't realise that hot air balloons were sort of quite big in the Regency period. And you had sort of Doc Brown characters going around and experimenting because normal people have never, before that, had never been able to get up in the air any time they wanted. Mm. So it was a perfect excuse to do all kinds of experiments of, you know, with thunderstorms or with the sea and air pressure and all this sort of stuff. Well, I remember we did the episode that you did on the um, the kind of killer plants. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There yeah. was a lot of that around there, wasn't it? People getting funding to oh yes, going to Papua New Guinea where there's plants that eat people, you know? That's right. Well, if you came back with something extraordinary and presented it to the Queen or the King, yeah. you were certain to, to carry on your funding. Well, they, they, they went crazy over a potato. Imagine if you came <laughs> back with a, can, with a kind of carnivorous plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or indeed Uranus. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway... In the ship's hold were two of the most powerful telescopes of the period, although, you know, they would be modest by modern standards. On the 16th of January, Herschel's party uh, departed. It would be the inspiration for one of the greatest hoaxes of all time and the first known case, as I said, of modern tabloid journalism. And it was against that backdrop that during the summer of 1835, a series of newspaper reports in The Sun caused a worldwide sensation it was reported that herschel could see living creatures on the moon and i will point out that while that claim seems outrageous the authors make the point that it could be it's plausible because Mm. nobody knew well how would you know know? how would you know exactly well it's weird you just making me think of that the venus thing Mm. it's you know or, or or life on mars okay we're talking about you know microscopic or or you know, not we're not talking about huge kind of mammal-like creatures, but 
it, there's still so much we don't know. We've got no idea of our two nearest planets, whether there could be life on them or not. We no. still don't know. So it's a similar thing. And if you think back then, where if you, you know, even powerful telescopes today, you the type of detail that you can go in, you wouldn't be able to spot an animal, I wouldn't have thought, with a telescope no. on the moon even now. So, of course, it's believable, you know. <laughs> well, this is, this is the crazy thing. But you're right about... So it's a very cleverly pulled off stunt because in the paper they sort of say that they're going to be reporting on Herschel in this trip. And on the first day of reporting, they go into all kinds of detail about the telescope and how the glass is mounted and how it was created and how they are going to actually use it. But most of it's gobbledygook. It's it's largely made up. There's a few bits and pieces of truth, but it's largely made up. But it's the second instalment on Wednesday the 26th of August where they begin to describe the observations and the observers have their first close-up of the moon. Readers were uh, treated to the revelation that there was life on the moon. The writer first describes lush vegetation (laughs) and rocks of great beauty. He saw a beach of brilliant white sand... um, he, he also said he there, there was a girt with wild castellated rocks and uh, green marble chasms. Now, wow. again, this is like the first bit, and he paints this sort of, like I think, sort of borrowing a, a sort of a Jules Verneism. He starts, yeah, it's very Jules Verne, isn't it? He, yeah. yeah. Or yes, wow. He 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 describes uh, he uses the word grotesque blocks of chalk. Uh, <laughs> And uh, uh, the water as blue as that of the deep ocean. So he he, he sort of goes into this um, this flowery language. Definitely purple prose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But then he goes on. The discovery of life forms on the moon included a bluish grey creature the size of a goat, a powerful looking bison like am- am- mammal, and an array of colourful birds. In the shade of the woods on the southeastern side, we beheld continuous herds of brown quadrupeds having all the external characteristics of bison, but more diminutive than any species that has genus on our, uh, of our natural history. So, wow, it's that. I just. <laughs> sorry, I'm just putting myself in the position of that paper comes out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It would blow your mind, wouldn't it? I mean, it's a good job they didn't have paranormal podcasts back then because we'd have dined out on that for months. <laughs> well, the public lapped it up, of course they did. as you can imagine. Yeah. And if you imagine this newspaper, it's not just filled with this. This is kind of like page one of the sun. But once you get into page five or six, they're covering elements that other newspapers wouldn't cover so they they talk about like lascivious crimes they talk about uh, men who are uh, arrested for drunkenness but they also talk about you know like um a pub that sold the most beer last year sort of facts and figures that you would expect in a kind of tabloid newspaper of the day but had never been published before in uh in a, a newspaper that was pitched 
at sort of mass consumption. Always before that, it had been large newspapers with quite staid reporting that was kind of very, um, it was both factual and opinionated, but it was kind of, it would be about, um, you, you know, how our relationship with France is or um, the price of grain going up in three years' time. You know, those, those are real things that they discussed, but they're not of interest to your average person who wants to pick up a newspaper and read it in their tea break. That wasn't a thing yeah. until this came along. Well, I remember that when, uh, I think it was on the Canadian Halting one we did a couple of weeks ago where they, you know, this this old paper manifested and they've got pictures of it. And it's like, we were saying on that episode, it's like the amount of text that was on a page of a newspaper mm, mm. was just insane. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's It's almost impenetrable. Yeah. On the following night comes an even greater marvel. Four successive flocks of large winged creatures, wholly unlike any kind of bird, which slowly descended from the cliffs to the plain and folded their wings on their back and walked like men. (laughs) Seen from a distance of 80 yards, they seemed to be about four feet tall and were covered with copper-coloured coloured hair. It's like something out of Avatar, isn't it? That's, that's, That's what's going through my mind. And you would go, oh, my God. People must have gone out, stared at the moon and gone, that's all going on up there right now. Well, (laughs) you know how often the descriptions um, of of almost anything in that period, you read it back now and go, oh, that's a bit Um, (laughs) off-colour. My favourite, this isn't necessarily off-colour, but I I like the expression uh, referring to these um, flying creatures. The face was a slight improvement upon that of the large orangutan, being more open and intelligent in its expression. (laughs) So the guy to pull all of this off is uh, an author called Richard Adams Locke, who did have a background in actual sort of proper reporting. But this was planned. He had planned to do this. And he was evidently loving the lascivious nature of what he was doing to people. And this wasn't like an April Fool's thing. There was, no, no, it no. It was just kind of just randomly... They're planning. Wow, OK. That's crazy, isn't it? Well, you see, the the authors of the source material I'm reading, they point out that he's he's such a talented author that he, he, he sort of writes it like a spy novel right. and manages to slip in intrigue and sex so when he's describing these bat creatures he says um he said although they they were seemingly innocent and content that was notwithstanding that some of their amusements would but ill comfort with our terrestrial notions of decorum (laughs) and you know you obviously you know what he's referring to there and and of course again we know what sells newspapers So even the New York Times was hoodwinked, and it declares that the writer displays the most extensive and accurate knowledge of astronomy, and the description of Sir John's recently improved instruments, the account of wonderful discoveries on the moon, etc., etc., are all probable and plausible. (laughs) And so he manages to garner this level of trust amongst people, because it's impossible... I think now, even to look back and understand how much gravity papers like the New York Times had, even if they weren't being read by the same people, mm. those people weren't being laughed at for believing these things. Well, the the amazing thing about the hoax, really, if, if it did kind of fall some 
people with more scientific lean, it's got to come back to the telescope, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. That, you know, anybody who would have some knowledge of what was available technology-wise in terms of telescope, well, like we said, even today you couldn't see that level of detail on the moon. So it, it always amazes me that these things can take hold, you know, with actually the very first bit of the premise makes no sense, but it still goes. So there is this desire to believe it, maybe. You're right. And that's how he gets found out. Right. I mean, he was obviously going to get found out, but a group of scientists basically come together and they want to see the source material yeah. from from this uh, expedition. And, of course, in a, in a fit of brilliance, the newspaper guys just sort of make up this idea that, um, oh, yeah, no, there's going to be a pamphlet coming out for the scientific community. In fact, we're involved in it. And he gives them this cock and bull story about it's at this printer's and, oh, it's right. gone there for proofreading. In fact, there's a scene where they describe somebody running around town kind of like every time they they send these scientists somewhere and then this person pops up and goes, oh, you just missed the thing. I'm really sorry. (laughs) Right. And uh, so they they were claiming that they had photographic evidence? Well, so they were were claiming that they had, like, first-hand affidavit of all this happening. Right. I mean, one of the most outlandish claims, when they're talking about how this person is observing everything... What they describe is basically um, rigging up what you would call a screen. You know, it's described as kind of this white curtain. And they can play the images off the back of, through the telescope, onto this screen. So lots of people could see these flying birds and stuff. Of course, you know, that none of that makes any sense at all because there's, you know, there wouldn't even be enough light, even if that was possible with the optics of the day. And these scientists are very much thinking, hold on a second. second." So... Old Locke, he, it's sort of, it's not a disgrace. The paper lives on. And although people point to it and say, you know, at the time, they say, I'm not sure that was quite right. It kind of goes away. And Locke does try, he, he sort of moves away from that newspaper, goes somewhere else. He tries to do other big stories that he has concocted. But, but, but he didn't, he didn't fess shy. up. No, he didn't fess up. He The, the best he did was what once everybody had basically realized that it was all complete nonsense he said well of course i did it as a parody right he said he was trying to show how gullible people were right. but he also said you know i was trying to have fun with people and you, you know i guess if he'd been around he might have pointed at the War of the Worlds yeah. uh, radio play, yeah. but I think that's very different. That was that was definitely a drama, and that's how it was pitched. This is a newspaper; it was pitching it as reality, passing it off as true. It's funny because I'd never really thought about that in terms of must have been quite an important thing in press history, as you were saying, because it kind of explains those kind of stories that you would get in the National Enquirer or over here when there was the, uh, what was it called, the sport or the Sunday sport. They, they did that kind of story. that I know they World War II bomber found on the moon, I always remember. So oh, yeah. yeah. so Freddie Starr at my house. Yeah, but it, so it, it obviously created a tradition of this almost um, entertainment passing off as news. 
Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, totally. So this is kind of 1830s. Like you said, you just, you wouldn't know the man on the Clapham omnibus about uh, telescope technology. So you would just, especially with a newspaper that has a history of printing factual stories, it would just blow your mind. And I guess what you haven't got, which you've got now, is if somebody did this, it would be dissected and pulled apart by mainstream TV news. It would be on the internet. So, you know, the lifespan of this kind of story would be very short, wouldn't it? But back then... I mean, there was probably for years and years afterwards even... So there was never an admission that this was faked. Um, no, it was more of an admission of, oh, well, uh, you weren't supposed to believe it anyway, is basically what it was. Right, right. So there is some kind of... I mean, certainly for that writer that you're talking about, I guess today... I mean, your credibility would be shot as a journalist. You'd never work again, but maybe it was different then. Well, he no, I mean, he didn't really... I mean, he did work again, but he was never... He he enjoyed as a heady height with this. He yeah. was the talk of the town. Yeah. You know, I, I suspect he thought he might be able to pull it off and get an even better job, but... I'm surprised no one's... I mean, maybe they have. I'm surprised no one's made this into a movie. It'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? it it's been it, it's been dramatised in books. I okay. don't think it's been turned into a movie, but it has been dramatised in books. But you're right, it would it would make fun, a fun movie. Yeah. But the the other thing... So I, I want to get onto my gasser, but I was... <laughs> this, this also intrigued me. Do you remember at school... And it's a really distant memory, but there was the Colorado Beetle scare. Does that ring a bell? The name Colorado Beetle comes to mind, but... This would be... Don't remember the scare. <laughs> it would be around... I, I would be... I would be very young at primary school. I reckon it would be, be something like 83, 84, something like that. Right. And... We, we had an assembly about it and we had leaflets sent home saying that these bugs, these beetles, could cause fires. Oh, no, and, I don't remember this. Uh, and there were various um, fi- farm fires, in, basically where hay and straw was ignited, that were blamed on these little bugs. Right. We, you know, which is ridiculous now, but... How, you did, know. how did they make the fires? Well, it was never countries? clear to me. Right, it was okay. never clear. The, there was some sort of, you know, there was this vague sort of idea that there's a chemical reaction or something. They're an invasive species, right. and I think that's where it comes from. But that <laughs> The is, Colorado beetles are smoking in the hay shed again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it reminded me of the next case, but it also, like, it's not the only... I think we've spoken about before, like... Uh, you know the um, children and parents being warned that drug dealers are putting drugs in sweets yes. and giving them away at the yeah, school yeah, gates yeah. to get children addicted. Yeah, yeah. And the drug is variously acid or grass or hash. None of that makes any sense because they're not addictive drugs. Yeah. And they're certainly not putting heroin into gummy bears. Yeah. It's all made up. Uh, it's all uh, a flight of fear generated by 
you know, somebody's wild imagination or a, I heard of this that could have been that and it was my friend's cousin's brother's auntie, you know, all yeah. that. But the your Colorado Beta one is just incredible that somebody made a pamphlet. <laughs> but there was, like, but the sweets at the school gate, people, yeah, all, yeah. the, they were turned into proper posters and posted mm. outside the school gate. Maybe yeah. I just lived in a very paranoid area, but <laughs> yeah, really. that is what happened. Yeah. But this, I didn't know about the great kissing bug scare of 1899. No, I knew nor me. And so I just thought, I was going to save this for uh, February for uh, Valentine's. And I thought, no, 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 because if we're doing um, mass scares, this is a particularly good one. Yeah. So apparently the kissing bug is a generic term for numerous insect species that suck blood from mammals. Right. And it's so called because of the tendency to pierce the exposed skin of sleeping victims, most commonly on the face and especially the lips. Uh, so I, I, this this is very much an American thing because I never heard of it before. Right. Um, and it's called other things like uh, the assassin bug, the cone nose, the big bed bug, all of these things. Anyway, <laughs> but um, it became popular in the summer of 1899, that, that term did, when scores of Americans claimed to have been bitten on the lips while sleeping. So after biting its victim, the kissing bug, <laughs> this is not my words, ungraciously defecates on the host, <laughs> uh, and which is a practice that can transmit potentially fatal, fatal Chagas disease. I'm glad you said fatal rather than fetal. <laughs> yes. Um, and it, in addition... In Sorry, did you say Chagas disease? Shag... Shag... C-H-A-G-A-S. Oh, okay. Chagas? Chagas. Chagas disease. Chagas, yeah. Yeah, this is it's getting far too lewd if it's Shagger's <laughs> disease. Okay, uh, and in that fecal matter is a parasite which can uh, damage the heart, the nervous system, the brain, the colon, and the esophagus. Mm. And it does exist, of course. It's rampant in parts of Central and South America, and apparently, uh, seventeen million people have been affected, and fifty thousand deaths occur annually. Wow. Okay. However. The species of kissing bug on the United States mainland rarely bites humans. And when they do, it's almost always in self-defense. These things sound horrible, don't they? I'm really glad yeah, that no. I didn't know about it before. Yeah. Um, so in North America, the chances of contact, uh, contracting Chagas disease, Chagas, Chagas, Chagas plays pop, Chagas yeah. disease, yeah. is extremely low as uh, the more polite northern kissing bugs do not defecate while feeding. And uh, so that is what, you know, you don't... You They've don't got some this. standards, have they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this great big scare from 1899 can be traced to a Washington Post police reporter called James L. McKell. I practised this before I did, oh, came here. Oh, there's got to be one. But I did it in my head. Yeah. I should have done it out loud. McKellen. 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 It's, yes, but it's not. It's not spelled, like not like Ian McKellen. M C E M C E L H O N E. McKellen. 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 Right there we go. That's what I'm settling we'll, with. We'll go, we'll go with that. In the course of making his journalistic rounds in mid June, he began to note an influx of patients seeking treatments for bug bites in the Washington City Emergency Hospital. And upon interviewing hospital physicians, he learned that several people had indeed been treated for redness and swelling typically on the lips, apparently the result of an insect bite. But none of them had seen their attackers. <laughs> so, on the 20th of June, uh, McKellen... 
stick with that. Published a speculative, sensational, sensational account of the flurry of bug bites in Washington, describing victims as being badly poisoned and warning that it threatens to become something like a plague. And that's when this kissing bug idea began to be splashed across the newspapers. You can see why the newspapers went for it. Oh, quite, yeah. You know what I mean? The kissing bug, the, the kind of horror tale of the whole thing is perfect. Right? Absolutely. So people started, of course they did, self-admitting themselves to hospitals. With kissing bugs. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, there's an account of one man who went to sleep and woke up to find both his eyes nearly closed by the swelling from his nose and cheeks. And then he said, well, that's where the insect landed, and the doctors kind of agreed with him. I bet people were selling lip guards that you could put on when you were going to bed. I bet there was all that going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, there was all that stuff going on. In fact, it got to the point where there was even poetry... (laughs) (laughs) even poetry he even got that far (laughs) swift with undiscerning glee through the land he goes kissing upon the lips or the chin or nose some of us well know thy worth gay philanthropists some of us who put out for thee would never would be kissed i mean it's not going to make you poet lorid it's not bad though well delivered thank you thank you i'd forgotten that i had to get gay philanthropists Philanthropist to uh, work rhyme with kissed. Pam Ayres would have done a good version of that. Oh, she would. I wish <laughs> I looked after yeah. my lips. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it worked out for some, though, because um, the beggars in Washington bandaged themselves up and started going around soliciting for donations. But because ah, so because they've been bitten by the kissing. Bug. Yeah, yeah. But so they claim that they've been out of work. Um, a needed charity until uh, their bug bites went down, you right. know. So it, it was just a thing. So it's kind of the whole thing. There's a big, dark, deep story about it, but it is basically the story of one reporter and then a lot of uh, him sort of not misreporting but over-reporting what doctors are telling him. Hamming it up. Hamming it up. And then other newspapers joining in. And suddenly, any time that anybody had something afflicting your face, it was going to be the kissing bug. Right. And I think as well, because it's so, it's such an invasive idea, it's that same idea as you swallow seven spiders in your sleep, mm. which also is nonsense. Yeah, or, or those bugs that crawl into your ears and lay eggs in your brain. It's that kind of vibe, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, one doctor in the end, he gets so fed up of this and he's like, this is just complete nonsense. He puts the the attacks down to mosquito bites and the fact that they're being exaggerated by frightened citizens. Yeah. And he also points out that some of the victims were bitten by mundane bugs. But the patient, of course, again, fearful of getting some kind of terrible disease off it. So they're fearful of getting sickness and swelling and they manifest them. Psychogen- psycho- they manifest them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, almost like how you could freak yourself out with a panic attack or something like that. But it, it's having their brain is is driving a physical reaction in them or exaggerating it yeah yeah that's right that's right and the um the the book the reason i wanted to cover it as well as it being a, a ridiculous story 
you you remember that some of those accounts of the dancing people were blamed on the bite of a tarantula. Yes. And and that is very so this doctor likens it to that. Mm. So that idea if you recall everybody in that episode you get bitten by a a, a spider and then to get rid of the bad things that that venom might do to you you have to dance. Mm. And they say that the dancing is involuntary but it's good for you. Mm. It's the same thing here. It's exactly the same. Cuz there was also with the um the dancing to death thing um, I think there was some fungus, wasn't there, as well, that was supposed to be connected with wheat production, which was slightly um, psychedelic. So that, uh, but it was a similar thing that people had ingested something, and this is what was making them dance, rather than just pure mass hysteria. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I do like just before we leave this one. I do like there are some people who really ham it up there's a tailor called paul nichols he sounds like a tailor doesn't he mm. he is in brooklyn and he describes his encounter <laughs> he said the bug had a head like a rat's and two long fangs and tackled his leg instead of his cheek um <laughs> now <laughs> how can you tell that from a bug that's brilliant i don't know uh, well everything's bigger in new york so. everything is bigger <laughs> in new york yeah. but i just i love that idea and i think we see it again and again and again i i would also liken this sort of the kissing bug thing to um some of the big cat flaps yeah. that we have around the country yeah. i'm definitely not saying that there aren't alien big cats in the uk alien <laughs> i mean not indigenous to the uk i don't mean yeah. from outer space but you quite often if you live in the uk you will know this if you live in america i'm sure you have papers that do the same like the national Enquirer. but there'll be a newspaper in the downtime of like august and there'll be a picture of a black fuzzy thing in the field and, and it'll be like, oh, this bloke, he's seen it and it's definitely as big as a panther and someone else is like, no, it's the size of a bus. <laughs> and then two days later, there'll be somebody going, I'm terrified for our children. They're going to get eaten in their school. Yeah. And then, you know, a month later, the police are like, yeah, it was a cat. <laughs> it was just a big moggy. It yeah, was a cat. Yeah. And, and I think we're seeing the same thing here. Uh, obviously, it's not a cat, but um, you, you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah. But... All of that is the precursor, the fun precursor with some terrible names in it, to the mad gasser of Mattoon. Mm. This I, I've loved this story for ages, and I was looking for a good account of it because um, it's been it's been sort of penny dreadful, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's sort of yeah, been yeah. it's very hard to find a true and accurate sort of procedural account. But um, I give great thanks to. Uh, I assume she's a journalist, Monica Otoa. Oto oh my God, what is wrong with me today? <laughs> Monica Otodi, I think she's called. I think that's how she's uh, how you would say it. And um, she wrote this in 2019, and I've just caged little bits of her descriptions and stuff because I think it tells the story. Cool. But just to set the scene, in September 1944, the front pages of the Daily Illini. Now I didn't. I thought, oh, it's a spelling mistake. No, there, yeah, there is a there's a newspaper called the Daily Illini. Yeah, it still exists. Wow. It still exists. It was covered with updates about obviously the ongoing war, but the newspaper also chronicled, you know, not just the developments in the war, but um, other things that, and spe specifically, uh, the young men who were walking around the university's halls because it was also it was affiliated with the university. The newspaper. Right. 
Now, what was so weird about this is with the war raging and um, everything that's going on in the world, the mad gasser of Mattoon is splashed across the front page. You see, for those of us who didn't know, and I didn't know this until uh, I, I wrote it last week, Mattoon is in obviously in Illinois. It's a small town that lies about 49 miles south of Champaign and has a population of about 18,000. In addition to being the bagel capital of the country, didn't know that. Wow. (laughs) Get a good bagel there then. It was the site of a suspected case of mass hysteria. And I've got the newspaper. I'll show you afterwards the newspaper front page. I'm not surprised though if they do good bagels. I'd I'd almost forgotten the story. I went all Homer Simpson (laughs) when you mentioned bagels. Carry on. (laughs) The, The victims of this alleged mad gasser smelled a foul odour and then fell to the ground paralysed convinced that a criminal was behind the attacks the city dubbed him the mad gasser of Mattoon great name and it all kicks off September the 1st 1944 that night Aline Kearney put her two children to bed while her husband drove his taxi route since her husband was away Kearney's sister and nephew stayed over but everything changed after Kearney climbed into bed. I first noticed a sickening, sweet odour in the bedroom, she said, but at the time thought that it might be from the flowers outside the window. But the odour became overpowering. I began to feel a paralysis of my legs and lower body, she says. The mother managed to call out for her sister who rushed in and opened the window, clearing out the mysterious fumes. This is so, um, you know, 1944 sounds like a long time ago, mm. but um, th- those accounts, uh, the newspaper reporter has actually got, th- I've got a picture here of them, a photograph of them telling those accounts, you know. It's, right. it's, it's sort of, because 1835, we're talking about people looking up at the moon and believing that there's herds of bison up there. But we're just talking 110 years later, we've got, you know, proper cameras are taking photographs of people so this is not i i don't think it's the same thing at all this is quite it's not a a hoax in that sense no no people are believing something's happening yeah so was that the first story this one or was it was it after it had been published well this is the it, it choreographically no but you'll hear why in a minute okay so after the attack police patrolled mattoon looking for anything unusual but they found nothing When Kearney's husband uh, arrived home, he spotted something suspicious. A tall man lurking in the night, wearing dark clothing. The next morning, Mattoon's local newspaper, the Journal Gazette, ran a headline about the anaesthetic prowler on the loose. And soon, more reports of gas attacks sprung up. Police and reporters rushed to to learn more about the mysterious mad gasser. And soon, more victims came forward. The Rafe family claimed that they had been attacked the night before Aline Kearney. Urban Rafe, that's a good name, isn't it? Urban Urban. Rafe, yeah, had left his bedroom window open and at around 3am a strange fume came through the window, making him ill. By September the 5th, the Mattoon paper counted multiple victims, including two children. And the case took a turn that night when Carl and Baloo Cords noticed something strange on their door. The couple had been out that evening. When they returned at 10pm, Baloo spotted a pink cloth stuck into her uh, into her screen door. Mm. She snatched up the fabric and gave it a sniff, 
would it have the same sweet, cheap perfume odour than the other victims of the mad gasser noticed? Well, inhaling it was a mistake. Really? Baloo (laughs) said that she felt as though a charge of electricity had gone through her. A burning sensation began in her throat and she reportedly began to bleed from the mouth. The The attack had all the signs of poison gas. But the mysterious culprit remained at large. Don't sniff it. Well, I, I was thinking that as soon as you said. So there's a mad gasser on the loose, according to the papers. You get home and go, oh, there's a there's a kind of rag shoved in my doorway. That could be from the mad gasser. I better check. I'll give it a sniff. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay right, all right. Honestly, honestly. <laughs> September the 18th, Time magazine ran a story about the mad wow. anaesthetists of Mattoon. Yeah, we've got. To, they couldn't just stick with the mad no. gasser, could they? <laughs> We're going to have to make this a bit more highbrow. The mad anaesthetist. <laughs> it gives him an air of yeah. sort of uh, qualification, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, he knows what he's doing. Well, they say, and this is the first time we get a description. He's a tall, thin man who wears a black skull cap. He moves through the night as nimbly, as secretly as a cat squirting a sweetish gas through bedroom windows. Yet no one knew who was behind the attacks. Hysteria swept through Mattoon. Armed mobs took to the street at night looking for any sign of the gasser. The situation grew so dangerous that the police chief involved issued an alert saying, roving bands of men and boys should disband. They're in grave danger of being shot by some frightened property owner. Mm. On September the 8th, the local paper ran an editorial that declared, we suppose it is natural for the pride of policemen to be stung a bit when the crime is committed. But this, for this reason, there has been a tendency in Mattoon police circles recently to conceal from the public the fact that certain crimes have occurred. Basically, it's a hit piece on the police. Right. They're covering it up. That's, that is the implication, yeah. And, and they don't take too kindly to telling people to, you know, stop being vigilantes. Yeah. The police chief tried to pin the mystery on a local diesel diesel engine plant. We found that large quantities of car- carbon tetrachloride are used in the war work at the Atlas Imperial Diesel Engine Company, the chief said. And that has an order which could be carried to all parts of the city as the wind shifts. But Atlas struck back, claiming that no one in the factory had reported any illness because of the fumes. There are two principal reasons why he was not caught, the General Gazette declared. One is that our police failed to take the case seriously at first. The second is that when the police finally decided that there was something to it, mass hysteria and outside influence combined to make their efforts unsuccessful. So... It's taken hold. Yeah, exactly. And there's no... Basically, what they're saying is, this this isn't mass hysteria. This is... The hysteria is because the police haven't done anything. It's very interesting that they're pinning this... You know, this isn't the newspaper's fault for reporting it. It's the police's fault for not doing anything seriously about it. Mm. Um, in the Time article, they declared the mad gasser an arch criminal. That is the mad anaesthetist. Yes. The Chicago newspapers called him the gas fiend and the mad <laughs> phantom. And the story even made it to the battlefront. Soldiers wrote home to family in Mattoon asking if they were safe. Wow. Which is sending, sending their gas masks back. For yeah, yeah. Wow. Chemists in Chicago claimed there was no evidence of an actual mad anaesthetist. <laughs> <laughs> Seventeen Mattoon families claimed that they were gassed in a single night. However, 
The victims reported remarkably similar symptoms. We got the nausea, the temporary paralysis, the vomiting. So no, no deaths? No. No deaths, no deaths. Just, no, no. just an adverse reaction. No. Yeah. Um, as this gets, there's more and more of this reporting. It's, it's now happening on a daily basis. And the police commissioner uh, issues a new warning saying i wouldn't walk through anybody's backyard at night now for ten thousand dollars it's now get everyone is trigger happy yeah. now because right. they're now they've got a description which comes from nowhere that description mm. is completely made up right and then as quickly as the gas attacks in uh, began they ended no new reports came in about strange odors or fumes now one of the reasons for this could be and this is what the author of this piece claims, the chief of police, fed up with the situation, said he would arrest anyone who claimed to be a victim unless they first underwent a medical examination. I love that. I had to qualify that. Yeah, I'm going to arrest you. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. There was a second part yeah, to yeah, that, yeah. gladly, but still, it's still a bit extreme. And, and it, was, it was off the back of that that suddenly the attacks began to dry up. Right. But according to... There's a chemistry teacher, Scott Morana... He says the gas mad gasser was real. Yeah. He points to Mattoon resident Farley Llewellyn. That's another good name, isn't it? Yeah. Sounds like something out of Father Ted. Yeah. When he wasn't lurking around his family's grocery store, like lurking. Lurking. <laughs> his family's grocery store. He was working there, <laughs> lurking. Yeah, okay. Um, Llewellyn was working in his secret chemistry laboratory. His experiments once caused an explosion in his quiet neighbourhood. Was Llewellyn the mad gasser? Well, the author says it's almost unimaginable that the police didn't rule out the loner with a secret lab. And even <laughs> if Llewellyn did test a chemical concoction on his neighbours, he almost certainly did not visit dozens of houses in a matter of days. Right. So they, they basically say... This guy maybe did it once and it just went crazy. Is that, is yeah. That the, is that the, the threat? What, no. So so the idea, it's still not proved whether he was real or not. Right. Although one of the big problems about going around gassing people is that to create a decent concentration of gas mm. in a room, you first of all really need to make that room airtight yeah. and then you need to put, a lot of gas in there. Yeah, and, and break in with all that stuff. And break in with all that stuff. Now, depending on what sort of gas you're using, it could either be lighter than air or heavier than air. Now, of course, if it's heavier than air, like carbon monoxide, it's going to float, it's, it's going to sink to the floor. Yeah. And <laughs> if you're the mad gasser, you're carrying, presumably carrying a tank around with you. Yeah. If even if someone's lying on the sofa, you have got to fill a room to at least three-ish feet of gas yeah. before anything happens yeah. and that gas is going to go out through every hole it possibly can yeah. it seems really super unlikely because you you know although we laugh about the woman sniffing the piece of cloth it isn't possible to gas an entire household with blowing air through a piece of cloth it just won't yeah. it just yeah. won't happen yeah but there's another interesting take to this which the book that I'm sourcing this week also covers, and they say you can't look and understand the Mad Gesser episode without looking at what the world is doing in terms of the Second World War and the worry about uh, chemical warfare right. and gassing. Yeah. 
there's an article in uh, Newsweek and American Journal of Public Health. They discuss this poison gas peril facing the world. And there's this idea that as the war increasingly turns in favour of the Allies, the concern was that German commanders desperate to defend the fatherland might resort to gas warfare and basically a scorched air Mm. policy. And in fact, it says the Allies were so concerned by that that the Germans might use um, gas during their 6th of June uh, D-Day invasion that they had a plan to retaliate within 48 hours with two bombing raids consisting of 400 planes each all loaded with chemical weapons designed to to hit specific targets in Germany. Mm. And there was this, uh, there's a guy called Frederick Brown who's quoted, he's a gas warfare expert, and he said D-Day was the most dangerous period for German initiation, uh, uh, basically a credible threat that was widely discussed in the press during the latter months of 1944 uh, about the Germans just kind of, it's kind of, I guess, what we talk about with Russia, like Mm. just lobbing everything they've got because they're going to take everybody down. And this begins to fill the newspapers. So in 1944, this guy, Frederick Brown, is talking about how dangerous um, the situation is in Germany. And the, the idea that Americans were so preoccupied with the subject... They have an interesting take on the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast because apparently there is a view that some of the people who were listening to the broadcast interpreted it as a surprise German gas raid. So Mm -hmm. I'm not talking... Obviously, 1938 is before... Yeah. The period. But there's this this idea that um, because there is a... um, uh, a build-up of tensions. Yeah. That is kind of the first time where people think, oh, I wonder whether we're under attack by by gas. Mm. And so I'm not sure that that really does explain everything, but it is a very... It's a very... Um, it's not a convenient, but it does make sense that gas is in mm. the discussion points of everybody. And being America is so far away from the war, the, a, a, a gas attack by some freak um, bombing raids over uh, America is potentially possible. Mm. So it's, again, it, it just amplifies maybe the story or, or the hysteria. I, I, it's funny, as you were talking, I was... It's very different, but I had a little bit like that this week. We um, we broke something and we were super gluing it back together and it made reminded me of when I was a kid, when Superglue first came out. Do you remember? It was like, it's all these stories of people kind of gluing kind of footballs to their head and, oh, it's going to, you'd be able to glue your lips together and not be able to breathe. It was like, there was a bit of a mass hysteria when Superglue comes out and it's like now it's just on the counter in the kitchen. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah, I do, I do, yeah. Um, And I, I, I think you're right with all of these things comes a worry and a concern which builds into something else. Now, is it possible that, as with the the love bugs, the kissing bugs, that people can invent their own symptoms? Sure. I mean, uh, the brain can do powerful things. And if somebody had, for example, a panic attack, they could have imagined all sorts of things and then... That leads other people to worry, particularly if now the newspaper is pointing the finger at this dark, shadowy character walking around. Yeah. 
They believe it's real. Why wouldn't you believe it's real? And it seems to me to be very irresponsible reporting to to give uh, a description of somebody to give a face to the crime to give a, a face to the crime because yeah. the police didn't do that yeah and and then they start and turn the finger uh, turn and point at the police for not doing anything well yeah. w- w- if the police turn up and investigate and there isn't anything to see what can they do yeah it's funny that but that um i, I think i've mentioned it on the podcast before when i was uh, living in japan and i had um blowfish sashimi you know i felt the effects of how that can take hold because i had it and within about 10 minutes i'm like oh i'm feeling a bit hot and sweaty and something's going on do you know what i mean and i just wigged myself out i was fine absolutely fine Mm. and i was in a really nice restaurant and they wouldn't have cut it really close to the poisonous gland and all that stuff Mm. but there was something in me that just the power of that the of the mind and its control in some ways over your physical reaction is is incredible really uh, i i agree i agree it's and i think if you're surrounded with that information because now what do we do we come and sit on google and go you know am i dying usually google says yes yeah, yeah. but um <laughs> yeah. uh it, usually you just kind of go oh no i can see that that is probably you know that's a symptom of this thing that i did or that thing that i did and the the idea of a physical thing happening to you it can be so real if you're surrounded by people who believe it but it's funny where as you were talking because i i remember how i started last week's podcast on the Scottish UFO wave at uh, Bonnie Bridge. And I'd said, well, what's really interesting about it is the multiple sightings over a number of years. And, and actually, this episode's making me think, well, well, maybe that doesn't help you. Do you know what I mean? Maybe mass hysteria is worse than just one person having a sighting or a couple of sightings. I'm not mm, saying there was mm. nothing going on in Bonnie Bridge. I'm not saying that at all. But... Um, that thought in your mind of lots of people experienced it, lots of people saw it, it's got to be something important. Actually, you, we've done enough on mass hysteria and these kind of stories before that you know, once something takes hold, really hard to kind of separate what could be factual from, you know, bison on the moon. <laughs> bison on the moon. Yeah. Gosh, what a wonderful vision that would have been. Yeah. But... Yeah, so I don't, uh, I think, um, what has this got to do with, I mean, obviously it has got a lot to do with the paranormal, but I think when we're talking, and I've said this before, we've both said this before, when we're talking about things that are reported secondhand and thirdhand, maybe even fourthhand, as is the case in some of these things, um, no matter how many people believe it or want to believe it or how much truth there appears to be in it, it, it just goes to show that you could cause an awful lot of damage by in, even uh, non-intentionally by doing these things. And obviously in our world, it isn't usually a lot of damage. But um, I do think that sometimes these uh, these sort of, I, would, I was going to say flaps, but the these sort of accidental or, or on purpose delusions make it very, very difficult for us to find out the truth about quite a lot of the weird stuff that we like to talk about. Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, I'm wow. I, I'd not heard that story of the telescope and all that stuff on the moon. Um, that's an amazing story. That's an amazing <laughs> story. I mean, I'd heard of the um, the mad gasser or the mad anaesthetist, if if we're being more posh about it. But um, yeah, I hadn't heard of the moon thing. Yeah, it, I'm fascinated by that idea that things that things take hold to that level you know like the moon one is a pure example of it and i know it was of the time because hard to disprove or prove it either way but yeah fascinating yeah and um i did wonder whether he got a photograph of um what were they called the the x drones mm. that um uh our, our mining on the moon man yes said had been there for for years well, let's clear the bison out of the way first yeah. before they got going with that. It's Ruining our mining operation on the moon, those bison and the flying whatever they are. The amount of stories that have been told about what is on, in, mm. or indeed what the moon is, is extraordinary. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, yeah, it's... it's Yeah, there is. Um, again, that ties into your theme in a way. There's this... There's this mystical place up there that, you know, we can pretty much see every night. And, yeah, it, it just sparks your imagination. It really does. Um, obviously, my favourite uh, lunophobe is, uh, or lunophile, actually, I should say, is the werewolf. Yes, again, yeah, yeah. But, that, you know, there is mysterious stuff about the moon anyway, the size of the moon, the the eclipse thing, you know, how it's perfect for an eclipse the tidal impacts, the water going in from both sides, you know what I mean, rather than yeah, kind yeah. of shifting. All this weirdness that, again, we can kind of scientifically get our heads around a bit more now, but back in the day, it must have been a weird thing. It's like it had, had and in a way has, magical powers. It does, it does. Suddenly to uh, fuel the imagination... Definitely. Well, that was amazing, Ben. I really enjoyed that episode. And I, I, it was funny, as you were describing the moon thing, I just had the pictures of it in my head. Um, and I guess back in those days in the papers, they didn't even do artist impressions or anything. It was just a text-based story, was it? It was a, it was a text-based story, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, were, like, there might have been some illustrations. I didn't see any. I, I'm, I'm most disappointed that what they didn't do was sort of claim that they were going to be bringing back moon meat. You know, those bison, yeah. beyond anything else, yeah, yeah. they sound delicious. Yeah, they do sound good. And, uh, <laughs> well, the vacuum of space would keep them pretty fresh as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Natural, organic, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to any vegans. I'm, I'm not going to eat any bison, I promise. Yeah, yeah. Does it count if they're from the moon? Um, brilliant. Well, look, if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, write us a review. Uh, like subscribe do all that stuff if you really liked it you can always visit us on uh, patreon which is patreon.com forward slash tqm pod get involved that way with the little community we're building there Um, yeah that's amazing thanks for that ben and uh, we'll be back next week with more quantum mechanics weirdness see you then take care Bye. bye
Are you the quantum mechanics?